Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello there. It's Jamie here from the Smart 7. Hope your Sunday's going well. Listen, feel free to skip past this. Uh, it's not your traditional Smart 7 episode. It's a bonus. We've just launched the Science 7. And I just thought you might want to listen to it. If you do listen to it and like it, please go and follow it over at The Smart 7 in all the usual places. It's going to go live every Sunday at 7am. But if science and tech isn't your thing, apologies in advance for what I suppose could be classed as the podcast version of you two dumping an unwanted album on your iTunes. So sorry, see you tomorrow. Bye. In three, two, one. Seven things you didn't know, you need to know. I'm Paul Connolly and this, this is The Science 7. This time out, you'll hear the who, the why, and the what the hell is that? And space hurricanes, robot doctors, why a healthy sense of disgust could save your life, and plenty besides. But first. We all get by with a little help from our friends, don't we? But the vast majority of us have absolutely no idea just how important they really are, or that strange laws govern how we choose, and indeed interact with them. Evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar has, however, cracked the code in his new book, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships. And it all starts with a number that happens to be named after him. Now, Dunbar's number is the limit on the number of relationships we can maintain at any given time. Uh, This really consists of both friends and extended family members. And it amounts to about 150 people in all. That upper limit is, for the most part, based on the time it takes to invest properly in friendships and then how mentally taxing having a wide circle of friends can be. Professor Dunbar goes on to tell the Science 7 about the vastly different approach taken by men and by women and reveals the secret to making friendships last. What's the um, most surprising thing that we've discovered. I think it has to be the fact that the two sexes really live in quite different social worlds. Um, Women's social world is much more intense and focused and emotionally deep. And and you see this difference reflected in how they maintain relationships with each other over time. In women, it's done through talking. Uh, Talking together has absolutely no effect on whether or not uh, men's friendships will last at all. Um, What makes the difference for men's friendships is doing stuff together and being engaged in some kind of activity. He concludes that the simple act of having and maintaining friendships could actually keep us alive for longer. So if we think in terms of friendships, what are the benefits of having friends for us? Well, the main one really is in terms of our psychological and physical health and well-being. It's how quickly you uh, recover from illnesses, how quickly you recover from major, major surgery. Even your risk of dying is most affected by the number and quality of friendships, close friendships that you have. They are simply the most important thing you can ever have. 
They say that lightning never strikes twice, but, well, it does, doesn't it? And new research from the University of Leeds claims lightning could have played a pivotal role in the creation of life on Earth. Minerals, sometimes deposited on Earth by meteor strikes, have until now been viewed as chief ingredients of the primordial gloop from which life is believed to have first emerged. But Sandro Piazzolo, professor at the School of Earth and Environment, believes there may be more to the greatest story of all. The central focus of our study that has been recently published is the origin of life. How did life emerge? We need certain ingredients, elements. Phosphorus is one of these really important elements. It is used for basic cell structures and functions. Importantly, phosphorus forms the backbone of our DNA and RNA. Both of these are molecules that encode and carry the genetic codes of living organisms. But from where, or indeed what, does that phosphorus appear? And would there really be enough to go around? Now, the key findings of our study is that lightning strikes would have provided a widespread source of reactive, available phosphorus that is needed for the emergence of life. Lightning probably provided as much or even more reactive phosphorus than meteorites around the time of the origin of life, so 3.5 billion years ago. And so we started to do a back-of-the-envelope calculation, knowing, taking into account what we know about early Earth, and we found that lightning strikes could have made up to 10 tons of phosphorus per year available for organic reactions on early Earth. So for one billion years, every year, up to 10 tons of this phosphorus was made. So there was ample opportunity for the emergence of life. Now, we at the Science 7 were both fascinated and, frankly, a little terrified to hear that wind speeds of almost 1,500 kilometres were recorded on Jupiter. So, when news reached us that space hurricanes are A, a real thing, and B, a clear and present danger to astronauts aboard the International Space Station, well, we wanted to find out more. Mike Lockwood is a professor of space environment physics at the University of Reading. So, how do they occur? Well... It's a magnetic field actually produced in the sun and dragged out by the flow, continuous flow of plasma that we call the solar wind. And if the solar wind contains the energy that drives space weather... Plasma fired towards us from the sun's core doesn't look like, well, anything that we would normally recognise. It sits cosily in a fourth state of matter after solid, liquid and gas. But with the right equipment and indeed know-how, it can be detected and then measured. Now, we've known this was possible for a long time, but we've never seen it happen to this extent and for so long before that it actually formed up uh, what we're calling a space hurricane, a large vortex of flow in the polar ionosphere. And what's interesting is that at the eye of that vortex, there is a precipitation going on. It's part of the current that comes down into the ionosphere to drive the whole thing round. 
That actually means that there's precipitating electrons that form an aurora. This was the first time a space hurricane was observed in the Earth's upper atmosphere. And yes, it rained electrons, which in turn caused an aurora, or indeed northern lights as we tend to refer to them. They incidentally are caused when charged particles from the sun strikes atoms in the Earth's atmosphere, resulting in a technicolor dream coat that spreads serenely across the night sky. But look, back to the matter at hand and to the risks space hurricanes pose. Professor Lockwood again. It will change the orbit of space junk. Now that's important. It has great implications for the space station. Now the space station has what's called a Whipple shield to protect it from space junk. And that will work for the small bits, but for larger bits of space junk, it has no option but to dodge. It, there are manoeuvres to get it out the way of, of anything large. And when you have to do that, means you have to know the orbit of that junk very, uh, very well. And that can be changed by these events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is The Science 7, a new weekly podcast series from the makers of The Smart 7. A series of soul-destroying lockdowns has been tough on all of us, hasn't it? But it has forced us into something of a period of reflection. And for some, that's culminated in plans to, you know, find an entirely new career. Good timing then for the European Space Agency to post their first Astronauts Wanted ad in 11 years. In all, they're in the market for five astronauts, and March 31st marks the start of the recruitment process. Lucy van der Tass is the ESA's Head of Talent Acquisition, and she first told the Science 7 what key attributes are needed if you're going to land this gig. You need to have certain... Uh, how can I say, certain strengths in your personality to become an astronaut. And I would say that the biggest one is the ability to remain calm under pressure. You can imagine you don't want to be up on the space station and uh, there is some crisis and then um, you panic. I mean, obviously, that uh, that's not possible. But I think as well, people need to be highly motivated. Now, most astronauts are highly motivated, but you need to be that in order to cope with irregular working hours, frequent travel and long absences from home, family and your so social life. And you need to be flexible with regards to where you're working, because a big part of being an astronaut, certainly in the lead up to space missions, is the training. And that can take place actually anywhere in the world. OK, so you got the gig. You've plastered ESA astronaut all over your Tinder profile, as you would do. But what? then? Well, the training itself, it takes um, yeah three to five years if you include the mission-specific training. So the first thing that happens when somebody's been recruited, they start with basic training. And this is one year, and it will 
take place in the European Astronauts Centre in Cologne. And they basically acquire the training and experience necessary for assignment to a space mission. So you can think about the fundamentals of engineering and science disciplines, lessons in Russian, spaceflight training, survival techniques, etc., etc. Great. Right. So you're all trained up. You're now fluent in Russian, uh, albeit you're closer to retirement than your start date by the time all this is ticked off the pre-flight list. But anyway, you're a lean, mean, mission-ready machine. Lucy, where are we after? They can expect to be sent in the first instance to the International Space Station. Uh, this is where we are operating and working together with uh, our partner space agencies. But we have already signed up for three missions to the Lunar Gateway, which will be a new space station which will orbit around the moon and will be used as a jumping point for further exploration and also exploration of the moon. So, picture the scene. It's late. You are nursing some injury or other, and you're patiently but grumpily waiting to be seen in an accident and emergency department. Then, in what you at the time assume is a pain-induced auditory hallucination, you hear someone say, the robot doctor will see you now. Well, that is exactly what happened to patients in Boston, Massachusetts, the recent testing ground for a groundbreaking study. Peter Choi, a research affiliate at MIT, is the lead author. Our interest in the study was really to understand how patients in the emergency department would interact with a agile or mobile robotic system. And so we collaborated with Boston Dynamics to deploy their legged robot spot among emergency department patients uh, outfitted with a telemedicine platform, which allowed us as physicians to evaluate patients during the COVID pandemic. We then asked participants about their experience uh, interacting with the robot and asked them to compare their experience with other in-person interactions they've had in the hospital before. By the way, a telemedicine platform translates to a robot with a built-in monitor on which a disembodied but, you know, nonetheless jolly doctor appears to advise and diagnose patients. Moment of truth then, were they a hit or a bionic swing and a miss? People also rated their experience and interaction with this robotic platform um, similar or equivalent to having an initial in-person interaction with a physician in the emergency department. They were also willing to allow robots to conduct certain tasks, for example, obtain vital signs, provide some assistive services in the hospital, like helping somebody get out of bed. I I think it's an interesting intervention to think about in the context of this pandemic, where there's been such an emphasis on trying to distance and eliminate in-person medical care when not needed. Um, These robotic systems kind of allow us to return to the bedside in a safe fashion in high-risk situations. I think that bodes well for continued development of uh, robotic systems uh, within healthcare. Now, if you have a stomach that's quick to turn queasy or a gag reflex that's triggered by the slightest pong, then you may actually be host to something of an evolutionary superpower. New research carried out at University Colorado claims a highly developed sense of disgust might actually cure what ails you. 
I am Dr. Tara Sipon Robbins, and I am a assistant professor in biological anthropology at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. This study was designed to test two main hypotheses associated with the emotion of disgust among the Shuar. The Shuar are an indigenous Amazonian population. We wanted to know if being more easily disgusted does indeed protect from infection and if disgust sensitivity changes with the environment. These were important to test because they get at the very core of why disgust is hypothesized to have evolved and how it functions. For instance, if disgust protects against pathogens, then you would expect it to be higher in high disease environments. However, if the environment one is in makes it difficult to avoid disgusting things like human and animal waste, contaminated soil, dirty water, other bodily fluids, then being too disgusted would be maladaptive because it would hinder survival. Think about when you're camping and you don't have access to clean water. If you can't wash your hands before you eat, you don't just decide not to eat. Instead, you wipe your hands on your pants and eat anyway. If you can't afford to be disgusted, then disgust should be down-regulated so it doesn't hinder survival. Okay, so smell tests complete. The verdict is in. We found that higher disgust sensitivity resulted in fewer infections. We also found evidence of environmental calibration. Communities and households that were more market integrated, in other words, household, had houses with cement floors, piped water, separate cooking areas, and access to market centers, had higher disgust sensitivity than households and communities that were less market integrated. So having dirt floors and greater exposure to domesticated animals and less access to market centers, among other factors, resulted in lower disgust sensitivity. This supports the idea that disgust sensitivity changes based on the ability to avoid pathogen-containing substances. Finally this week, it is bad news for bacon lovers everywhere, as research conducted at Oxford University found concrete and very disappointing links between the consumption of red and processed meats and 25 health conditions. Nutritional epidemiologist Karen Popier chews the fat. Several studies have shown that consuming too much red and processed meat could increase your risk of developing colorectal cancer. But we have less clear evidence regarding whether eating meat is associated with the risk of many other non-cancer related diseases. We found that higher consumption of unprocessed red and processed meat combined was associated with higher risks of developing ischemic heart disease, pneumonia, diverticular disease, colon polyps, and diabetes. We also found that higher consumption of poultry was associated with higher risks of gastroesophageal reflux disease, gastritis and duodenitis, diverticular disease, gallbladder disease, and diabetes. Our results suggest that meat consumption might have an association with a wider range of health outcomes than we previously thought. That's it for this week's Science 7, but we'll have a fresh episode for you next Sunday at 7am. In the meantime, remember to join me every weekday morning for the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.